Are you proud to be American? In general, I'd say yes, but I think we have a lot of work to do and that there's still a lot of progress for it, but I'm an optimistic person. Not particularly because of just how people treat each other. Yes, I am. I feel like I'm part of two different worlds. I'm neither proud nor unproud. While I recognize nationalities, um, it's not the most important thing to me. I'm a human. I am proud to be an American with um, many uh, reasons. I raised two children here in the United States, and uh, I was not able to uh, send them to a private school or tutoring, but they went to, they finished the high school, university, and they found their job. They, they're working hard. They live their own lives. I think this is wonderful. I'm proud to be an American. Those were just some of the responses I received from many different people, including my own mom and dad, when I asked them the question, are you proud to be American? And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. You just heard a number of different responses from people when I asked them the question, are you proud to be American? I actually got the idea to put together this little vignette of interviews while sitting in the airport lounge in London, I believe, on our way home from Rome. The first person I asked the question was actually a random person in that airport lounge who I soon learned was named Shauna. So thank you, Shauna, for being such a great sport and kicking off this week's podcast episode. You are all definitely going to want to stick around for the end of this episode because you're going to hear from so many different people, their full unabbreviated answers, including my mom and my dad's answer to the question, are you proud to be American? Now, by the time you listen to this episode, it will be July 4th, America's Independence Day. I don't know about you, but Independence Day always meant, let's see, a long weekend, barbecue, fireworks at the beach, and a mandatory rewatching of Will Smith killing a bunch of no-good aliens while Bill Pullman reaffirmed that this, i.e. destroying a bunch of aliens that were trying to take over the world, was the real reason I was so proud to be American. Just kidding. Sort of. In truth, just a handful of years ago, I would have described myself a patriot, someone who proudly stood for the flag while staunchly defending the First Amendment right to kneel before it. I loved U.S. history in high school, and I fully bought into the idea that our founding fathers were brave, brilliant men who unshackled themselves from oppression through sheer will and brute intelligence. I loved law school particularly any classes dealing with constitutional law. My favorite professor, Professor Curry, he used to keep a miniature copy of the Constitution in his breast pocket at all times, and he'd whip it out every now and then and read out loud from it as if, you know, a bedtime story to a bunch of one L's. 
I remember I took one comparative law class in which the young visiting professor from Germany went on for like 20 minutes about how the U.S. Constitution was the only formational document of its kind in the world and that it remained virtually unchanged relative to the charters of other sovereign states since its origination. Now, at the time, I remember nodding my head enthusiastically, thinking to myself, well, yeah, that's because our constitution is better than everyone else's, not realizing that my professor probably meant this as a criticism, not praise. Yes, I fully subscribe to the notion that America was the greatest country on the planet, built upon the exigencies of liberty and the transcendental notion that joy could be inherited by anyone with a little gumption and a willingness to dream. In retrospect, my rosy-colored view of my country was in large part a product of the things we learned in school. Give me liberty or give me death just sounded so cool, as well as my father's passion for American politics. I think that's what it really boiled down to. I learned just by watching my dad that you could be really upset with your country while still loving it enough to care. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages in The Scarlet Letter, a novel by one of the great American authors, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Quote, It is a curious subject of observation and inquiry, whether hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom. Each, in its utmost development, supposes a high degree of intimacy and heart knowledge. Each renders one individual dependent for the food of his affections and spiritual life upon another. Each leaves the passionate lover or the no less passionate hater forlorn and desolate by the withdrawal of his object. Unquote. Love of country can coexist with hate of country. But the real dagger to patriotism is indifference. Probably because we've spent the last 19 days traveling across Europe and we're currently obsessed with this show called The Americans, I've been thinking a lot about whether or not I'm still proud to be American. I was actually sitting at a cafe in Terminal 3 of London's Heathrow Airport, listening to the clipped chatter of Brits all around me, and I thought to myself, I wonder if Britons are still proud of being Britons. Given everything I've read about the UK over the past few years, the disgraceful resignation of its prime minister, the prevailing scandals that blanket the royal family, and the country's not yet fully consummated breakup with the EU, I thought it was a fair question. My lit agent, Charlie, who is so British I can't understand about 20% of his English, often includes at least a sentence or two in his emails lamenting the state of affairs in England as if to commiserate, you Americans aren't the only ones who have it bad. Do we have it bad? Well, I didn't think so. Not for a very long time. Sure, I've always known racism existed here in the United States. The kids on the playground who slanted their eyes at me while chanting Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees. Yeah, they did a pretty spectacular job of demonstrating racial ignorance at the tender age of nine, not the least of which was because I am neither Chinese nor Japanese. The unabashed Islamophobia that gripped the nation after 9-11, it infuriated me, enraged me, but only because I knew we could be that we should be better than that. 
And then 2016 happened. It seemed that at least half the country I loved so much maybe didn't love me back. At least not enough to defend me and my family from what seemed to be obvious, a president who didn't really care for immigrants. Anthony once asked me why I was so against Donald Trump becoming president, and for a second I was at a loss for words that I actually needed to answer that question before blurting out, because he stands for everything that is against me and my family. Maybe because I'd been subjected to Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, or some variation thereof my entire life here in the United States, I was particularly attuned to the rhetoric of racism, and as such, I could see that writing on the wall long before that nightmare became a reality. And I was absolutely devastated when I discovered that so few could see that writing with me. It was the first time in my life I started to question whether America was quite as beautiful as I always believed it to be. Because it was the first time in my life I didn't feel particularly safe in the country I called home. It was the first time in my life I began to see just how many people didn't view me as American enough simply because of the color of my skin, the kind of food I like to eat, or the fact that I sometimes spoke in Korean when I was with my family. As you all probably know, this hurt is what led to the Korean vegan as you currently know it. I felt profoundly betrayed by my fellow Americans. My seventh grade math teacher, well, she didn't call me a problem solver for nothing. I didn't see how the problem of America, as it revealed itself to me, could be solved by spilling my rage onto the cacophony that was Facebook or picking a fight with my Trump-supporting relatives. Yes, I have quite a few. I chose to continue believing in the people of this country, assuming that it was simply a lack of information that led to their tragic selection for the Oval Office. Thus, instead of contributing my voice to the collective rage, I decided to fill the informational void with stories, hoping that if more people understood what my family was like, they'd be more inclined to reject the politics of divisiveness and hate. I learned a lot from my first marriage, how to, quote, fight fair or to avoid fighting altogether. And I viewed the 2016 election as the first of many alarm bells, one that signaled the potential for divorce. I therefore also committed to listening as much as I spoke, taking ownership of whatever part I played in making so many fellow Americans feel left behind. It's been an interesting learning experience. For the most part, storytelling has been a creatively and personally fulfilling kind of political activism, but sometimes I wonder whether it is as effective as simply picking up the phone and just begging people to vote. I realize these aren't by any means mutually exclusive. I participated in more than one of these phonathons, but I do want to be somewhat strategic about how I allocate my own human resources. Moreover, even though I agree that the arc of the moral universe is indeed long, I often question how we can be so sure it bends towards justice. Currently, things don't look too good 
for America. We have more homeless people per 10,000 than Canada, Japan, or South Korea. In fact, we rank smack in the middle when it comes to homelessness, which is pretty depressing given that we are literally the wealthiest nation in the world. Despite outspending every other sovereign state on the planet when it comes to healthcare, the U.S.'s life expectancy has seen unprecedented lows, while other nations have largely recovered from pandemic-related deaths. We have more guns than any country. I know this is not news to some of you. In fact, for every 100 Americans, there are 120 guns floating around our great nation. Yep. There are more guns than people in America, thanks in large part to the immutability of that constitution I was so enamored with. Not surprisingly, we rank number two in number of gun deaths in the world and number two in the number of gun-related suicides and number one in school shootings. That last statistic is particularly appalling. Americans sustained 288 school shootings from 2009 through 2018. In second place is Mexico. How many school shootings did they have during the same period? Eight. As of 2018, the United States ranked a dismal 22nd when it came to competency in science, math, and reading. Our students scored only slightly above average, while students in China, Canada, France, and Germany, to name just a few, easily trounced us when it came to critical thinking. There are more than 100 white nationalists, and 99 neo-Nazi groups in the United States, which means that there are more neo-Nazis in our country than in the one that birthed Nazism. But what is jaw-droppingly disturbing is that one poll by the Washington Post estimates a whopping 22 million Americans are sympathetic to neo-Nazi white supremacist ideology. That is terrifying. And yet, approximately 810,000 immigrants apply for permanent residency in the United States every single year. In 2022, nearly 1 million individuals became naturalized citizens of the United States. More than 431,000 individuals sought asylum in the United States in just 2022 alone. The U.S. is the number one destination for those seeking refuge from their native countries. While I was sitting in the back of a taxi taking me to my hotel in France just a couple weeks ago, I received a voicemail from someone I hadn't heard from in quite some time, my client, Miriam. I've written about Miriam before. I shared her story in connection with raising money for the New York Legal Aid Group, an organization that, among other things, provides free legal services to those seeking asylum here in the United States. I know some of you will remember Miriam and her story because many of you donated so generously to that legal aid group. For those of you who don't remember, Miriam was born in Mali, one of the few places left on earth that still practices FGM or female genital mutilization, among a number of other unconscionable traditions designed to brutalize women. After undergoing FGM at the unthinkable age of eight, Miriam won a scholarship to study here in the United States starting in middle school. 
She studied here all the way through graduate school when she obtained her master's degree on an F-1 student visa. During grad school, Miriam fell in love and she got married here in the States and she was soon blessed with a beautiful daughter of her own. And although her family back home, oh my gosh, they were so thrilled, Miriam was horrified as they also insisted that she bring her baby home so that she could be, quote, fixed. You see, that was the terrifying part of Miriam's situation. I mentioned that she got married in grad school, but her husband, well, he didn't have status here in the United States as such. Once she completed her master's program, her visa would expire and she would be required to return to Mali, where her daughter would almost certainly be subjected to the same horrors that Miriam had to undergo when she was just a child. Indeed, mutilization, that wasn't the only thing that would be in store for Miriam and her daughter should they return to Mali. Miriam once explained to me that she left her house to run an errand without first asking for permission from her uncle, who was her male custodian after both her parents passed away. Miriam was beaten when she returned home as punishment. Miriam and her daughter, they would not be able to own any property, get a job, or even have credit cards without permission from a male custodian. In other words, Miriam would have no physical, financial, or social autonomy from a man for the rest of her life if she were to return to Mali. I met with Miriam the night before her big interview with the asylum officer at Homeland Security. I sat across from her at the dining area inside of her hotel, copies of her asylum application strewn between us while an LCD TV reported on something called coronavirus. I went through a list of questions I'd prepared in advance, and I warned Miriam that however sure she felt today, tomorrow she would feel as unsteady as the table we were sitting at. And I asked her if she had any questions before we concluded our prep session. At that point, she reached over and gripped my hand, and I can still feel just how impossibly soft her skin felt. She said to me, Joanne, you don't know. You don't know how lucky you are to be here. I thought about that for a few seconds before smiling politely and giving her hand a gentle squeeze. I know. As some of you may remember, Miriam's asylum application was approved. Afterwards, I worked with her to prepare her green card application it was one of the last things I did as a full-time partner at my firm. So, as I was sitting there in the back of my taxi in France, I listened to Miriam's voicemail. Hi, Joanne. This is Miriam. I just wanted to tell you that I got my green card. Thank you, thank you so much. I can never forget what you guys did for me. Thank you, Joanne. Now I can raise my two daughters here in America. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I share Miriam's story not as an apology for the terrible things I just rattled off about the United States. The U.S. cannot rest on its laurels simply because it has a better human rights record than Mali. Backwards is backwards, however far ahead you are in the race. Rather, 
I offer Merriam's story as another data point, one that merits consideration when evaluating America's growth and trajectory, whether it remains on track towards justice, as Reverend King believed. As I mentioned earlier, I believe I inherited an inclination towards politics from my father, who, as you all likely have heard, was born in what is now known as North Korea, something I never really knew until college. Just a few years ago, my husband and I took him out to dinner at a vegan restaurant in Chicago. While scarfing down some vegan chapche, he says out loud, out of nowhere, You know, your grandma fed me dirty swamp water to escape North Korea. My husband and I, well, we sit there totally confused (laughs) before I finally say, wait, what? What are you talking about? While I knew by then that my father's story originated in North Korea, the dirty swamp water detail had somehow eluded me until then. Daddy finishes the very last of his chapje, a clean plate despite grousing about vegan food, leans back in his seat, shuts his eyes as if remembering, and begins recounting the tale. When my grandmother was only 20 years old, she bundled up her newborn son, my father, and tied him to her back as she began the long trek across the 38th parallel and through the mountains to meet her husband, my grandfather, who was waiting for them near Seoul. My grandfather had fled almost immediately after V-Day as he had worked for the Imperial Police Force and therefore was at risk of being arrested or even killed. As such, it was just my grandmother and her son who had to find their way across the mountains. But first, they would have to sneak past the men guarding the boundary between what would soon be North and South Korea. To her left, a group of armed soldiers silhouetted against the moonlight, and to her right, the murky depths of an abandoned rice paddy. On her back, an infant mewling from thirst, Now, my grandma, she knew she was never going to make it across the border if my dad continued to cry because he would alert the soldiers. So she untied the knot at her waist and shifted the bundle until she was holding her baby in her arms. She crept towards the inky black water of the rice paddy until she was knee deep. And then she brought some of that water to her baby's lips. When he finally quieted, she hoisted him up as high as she could until his face was pressed against her cheek. And then she sank deeper into the mud until only their heads were above the water. And just like that, she and my father slipped past the soldiers across the boundary with only the stars a silent witness to their escape. Weeks later, she would reunite with her husband and start a life in South Korea. But that is another story. Wow, my husband and I both say at the end of Daddy's story. But more amazing to me than the fact that this happened is that it took nearly 40 years of my life before hearing of it from either my father or his mother, the woman who raised me. Children of immigrants often point to the sacrifices their parents made in exchange for opportunities. Going to one of the best public schools in the country, violin, piano, and voice lessons for as long as I wanted, graduating with a college degree and getting into law school. But Daddy's story spoke of something more basic, 
the profound power of a mother's love, the role that love played for the rest of my father's life, how it didn't just follow him to America, but propelled him straight into its heart. My father viewed America as the cliched land of dreams. And here, I think the historical context matters. By the time my grandmother finally made it past the 38th parallel with my father still strapped to her back, the Korean War hadn't even yet started. In a few years, my father would be permanently expelled from the land of his birth, and instead he would become a citizen of the Republic of Korea, a democracy that was younger than he was. In Korea, there's this concept called pegil, which literally translates into 100 days. It refers to the first 100 days of a baby's life because as we've just seen with my own father's story, those first 100 days, they are the most precious, the most fragile. Thus, in Korean culture, pegil is the first birthday celebration a baby has. My father, he grew up during the Pegil of Korea's Republic. And those days were indeed fragile. My father was four years old when Korea elected its first president, Seungman Ri. Korea's first president would ultimately be described as a dictator who was eventually exiled from the country. Why was he exiled? He changed the voting rules to guarantee he always won. He got rid of term limits so he could be president forever. He tear-gassed protesters, arrested those who tried to run against him, and passed laws to discount the votes of those he didn't like. When he was elected for the fourth time in a row, finally, young students flooded the streets in protest. And Ri, he came with his police force and tear-gassed grenades. My father was 16 years old that day, and he remembers running from police gunfire, hiding in the alleys as gunshots echoed all around him. One of those grenades hit a high school student whose dead body was discovered floating on the river the next day. The image of this child's body gliding into the harbor, it lit a fire in the Korean people, one that could only be put out with Ri's resignation from office. I've had many conversations with my father over the past few years, and what is more evident to me than anything is that perhaps because he grew up during the Republic's Pegu, although his hope and belief in the truth of democracy is unyielding, that hope is tempered by an appreciation for its vulnerability. On the morning of January 6th, 2021, my father sent a group text to everyone in my family. It was my little brother's birthday, and so he wished Jason a happy birthday. But he also went on to say that day, I am so proud of you for your unyielding spirit by which you got through all the obstacles last year. Still, there are two viruses to overcome. One is coronavirus. The other one is the group trying to overthrow this country's democracy. I remember when I read that text message that morning, the morning of my brother's birthday, I sort of rolled my eyes at that last bit, thinking, oh, well, there he goes again. Daddy is being a little bit overdramatic, as usual. 
just a few hours later. I watched the Capitol being stormed. And I learned firsthand just how fragile democracy is. Many Asian Americans will remember 2020 and 2021 as terrible years of violence. In 2020, the number of hate incidents against AAPI members reported to the police surged by 150 percent. In 2021, AAPI-targeted hate shattered that already record-breaking surge by 339 percent. Nearly 3 million AAPI adults experienced some type of racial hate in 2021. I asked my father whether in light of January 6th and the violence against Asian Americans, whether he would ever consider moving back to South Korea. He thought about it for about 10 seconds before answering, no, I still prefer the United States. When I asked him why, he explained, because in Korea... There is government corruption, not like here. It reminded me of Alexander Vindman, the lieutenant colonel who testified against Donald Trump. Colonel Vindman's father, who was from the Soviet Union, warned him against testifying, worried that his son might face life-threatening punishment for positioning himself against the sitting president. But the colonel reassured him that they didn't do things here like they did in the Soviet Union. Here, right matters. Does it, though? Colonel Vinman was punished as a result of his testimony. No, he wasn't executed, but he was coerced into resigning from a distinguished military career and lambasted by the same party that so often likes to tout its commitment to our troops. Sometimes, I wonder whether right was long ago replaced by money or power or gender or color or some combination of all of these things, and if so... What good could this small space for Korean vegan recipes and stories about my parents possibly do? Over dinner last week with a few of Anthony's relatives in Rome, I asked whether they were proud to be Italians. They shook their heads. No, not anymore, said one of them before adding, only when they are with non-Italians. The other quipped, Italians are very proud during a football match or the Olympics. Italy, too, has its own issues dating back, well a few millennia. Every country has its problems, they concluded, and I agreed. But the thing is, if I moved to Italy, as I sometimes dream of doing, they wouldn't be my problems. I could find a small, quiet little place, insulated from and quite happily indifferent to the politics of a country that wasn't mine, that could never truly own me in the way that America did. But even as I let this fantasy play out over a plate of vegan pasta during our penultimate night in the Eternal City, I knew that this would never happen. That some part of me, well, it would always be fighting for that bend towards justice. Are you proud to be American? In general, I'd say yes, but I think we have a lot of work to do and that there's still a lot of progress for it, but I'm an optimistic person, and so I hope um, I can continue to say yes. Um, not particularly because of just how people treat each other um, and just the, the climate of politics right now. It feels like we're going to be in the midst of a civil war soon with like how 
much animosity there is between like the two parties it's really like a kind of scary time to be around yes i am as i feel like i'm part of two different worlds. But i feel more like mexican than american <laughs> yeah. yeah but i i feel both yeah when you watch soccer who mm-hmm. are you rooting for mexico Me- mexico <laughs> the whole time i think pride is a complicated question for me so instead i'll answer that i'm immensely grateful to be an american uh, especially for the opportunity to build a life beyond my wildest dreams and expectations i'm neither proud nor unproud because while i recognize nationalities um it's not the most important thing to me i'm a human as i've gotten older i just realized that we're all just human we're all just people on this earth right and we arbitrarily define our borders and there's definitely like subcultures cultures and subcultures and all that is great but it's all just part of the human story that's, my name that's is jason i'm the korean vegan's little brother and i'm very proud to be an american I recognize that it's far from perfect, but I'm a firm believer that the core tenet around equality and justice for all still defines this great nation. We fought each other tooth and nail around what that actually means in society, and we continue to do so, which is honestly kind of scary sometimes. But it's precisely those fights, both past and present, that to me ultimately makes our rights and freedoms that much more meaningful and something to be proud of. Yes, absolutely. I'm proud to be an American. Don't get me wrong, though. I have plenty of issues, concerns, and changes I'd like to see. but. That's my right, my duty, and my voice to have and use. I look forward to exercising those rights in the future. I don't think I can say I'm proud to be an American because there is just a little sense of shame and embarrassment within me, especially when I'm traveling abroad. I tend to hide my Americanness. But I am very, very grateful to be an American, to have grown up here, to live here, to have the life that I have. It would not be the same case in any other country. So I'm very grateful, very glad to be an American. But I just don't know if I can say I'm proud. I may not be proud of where our country is today. I am proud to be from a country that has given opportunity to so many that may not have found that opportunity elsewhere, including my parents that immigrated here in the 1970s. Yes, I am. Why? Lots of reasons to be proud of. I found my God from the United States of America. Secondly, it is you and Jason I am so proud of. I firmly believe both of you are the blessings God has given to me. My decision to immigrate to the United States of America. Without that, neither both of you nor I and your mom will be here for living. I still believe this country number one in every respect comparing with other countries. It is so in democracy, legal system, equality, and so on. That's why I am so proud of living here in America. I am proud to be an American with um, many uh, reasons. First of all, uh, I am part of melting pot in America. American uh, history began with immigrants from all the other countries. 
and they brought their cultures and diversity to the United States. I think that makes the United States very strong. America is the most uh, country that are welcoming people from all the uh, different countries. And the other one is um, United States always on the front line to help other countries when they're in crisis or danger. I think uh, I am part of that uh, different ways and I'm proud of it. The American education system is well organized and uh, some country, I would say the Korea, their education system is very good and strong, but they are so competitive, very expensive to send the children to private school and tutoring from early morning to the late evening. Even that starts uh, there in uh, kinder. But I raised two children here in the United States, and uh, I was not able to uh, send them to a private school or tutoring, but they went to, they finished the high school, university, and they found their job. They, they're working hard. They live their own lives. I think this is wonderful, and I'm proud to be an American. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Special thanks to Shauna, Yola, Edith, Sid, Singak, Jason, David, Yemin, Nabia, and of course, Amma and Daddy for your heartfelt and thought-provoking answers today. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, leave a comment and a rating below, and of course, if anything in this week's episode inspired you, please go ahead and share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, or even on social media. Wherever you are, geographically or even existentially, until next week, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely 4th of July.